0: You're listening to Horse Racing Heroes, Episode 4, Crisp.
1: Alright, how you doing not so bad? Thank you very much for downloading the show. Episode 4 of Horse Racing Heroes, the racing podcast with no betting tips or current affairs chat. And every episode simply being about one great horse or person in racing. I'm trying to hear some some good stories along the way. So, one of the most famous horses in history is Red Rum. As I record this, he is the only horse to win three ancient Grand Nationals. And this episode is not about him. This episode is about the horse who finished second to him in the first of those three Grand National wins. And that horse was called Crisp. And his story is pretty incredible. And it's one I think a lot more people, certainly younger people, uh, should know about. So, that day at Aintree, he was carrying 12 stone on his back. That's a weight no longer even allowed in the race. And it was 23 pounds, or a stone and nine, more than what red rum had on his back. And he only got chinned in the final strides. So it's rightly regarded by many as one of the best performances not to win the race. But that's not all, folks. Uh, what some people may not know is that Crisp had initially been running in Australia, where he had the nickname of the Black Kangaroo. He came over to England... Won the champion chase at Cheltenham easily, obviously over two miles, which makes his performance in the National two years later, over four and a bit miles, all the more incredible. So I am delighted to be joined on this episode by Richard Pittman, who was the stable jockey for Fred Winter and the rider of Crisp. Richard is a brilliant storyteller, loads of insight, and his recounting of that Grand National is just great listening. So I think and hope the show will be interesting, whether you know all about Crisp or know absolutely nothing about him. And just one small note, uh, every so often on my end, there's a small little background noise, um, nothing too bad by any means, but unavoidable at the time. um, Humble apologies and it will be avoided in future episodes. So please enjoy Richard Pittman telling us all about Crisp. So I wanted to start off, I suppose, by talking about his early days, I mean, it's very rare these days, certainly for a jumps horse to come over from Australia to the UK. So, I mean, w- what could you tell us about his time down under, first of all, before he came over to the UK? Yes, it's an interesting story. He was bred
2: by the, the, Sir Chester Manifold, who was chairman of the Flemington Racecourse uh, over there. And um, the horse was winning everything that he was going in, and they were putting so much weight on him to try and equalize things that he thought it was unfair on the horse, even though he was a huge, big, black horse. You know, he could carry weight. He thought it was unfair. So um, he came to us, to Fred Winter, via America having a run in the Colonial Cup where he was bit uh, slightly disappointing, but uh, he came to us. And he'd never been in a cold country. And he arrived in December, early December, and his hair grew... His coat grew like human hair, which is most unusual. And it was, it was just flowing in the breeze, you know. And so uh, uh, we thought we'd better clip him. And uh, the, the lad who looked after him was sent to do it. Well, the clippers came out over the box door, followed by the lad, Chipper Chaper. I mean, the horse was having none of it the moment they were turned on. So we doped him had no effect you know great big horse we gave him a good dose it had no effect um same thing wouldn't accept anyone in the box so he then was sent down to lambourn vet to put in the steel stocks there and he was going to kill himself you know with, with, with trying to get out of them so that was the next thing we we failed eventually they went to what is now Legoland near Windsor it was a safari park and got some dope that they used to use on rhinoceros and elephants now it didn't put the horse down but it immobilized him it was a, quite a dangerous thing to do in a way because it, it was a precedent we had no idea what it might do to a horse obviously the dosage was altered from elephant um, but what it did he stood there immobilized and you could Push his head to one side and it would stay stock still there. So you could clip under his chin, you could lift a leg up and that would stay there, and you could clip under his leg. He was so amenable. Anyway, he was clipped and um, and, and ready to do battle. So he'd been a top horse in Australia, but had outgrown them really.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, I know he'd won two Hiskins chases and was breaking track records. Um, how, how did he come to, to go to Fred Winter, your boss at the time? Well,
2: Fred Winter, as a, as a jockey, was just, um, you know, a legend. And we had all the best American steeplechase owners with us, Mrs. Dupont Scott, Mrs. Valentine, Mrs. Ballos. And we had loads of Ogden fits. We had loads of them had horses with us. And presumably they did their homework and um, decided that was the place to go. And I'm, I'm so glad that they, he did come here. Very hard-pulling horse. Uh, the gallops there. Obviously, everyone uses sort of interval training, all-weather strips now. But uh, there's a superb gallop at Lambourne It's a round, almost a mile bowl, and then you you go up a, a hill to finish. And Crisp, and even from the start, would go round the bowl, pulling your arms out. And he he'd see the hill, and he'd just go faster. You
1: know, he he was a monster right from the the day one, Okay. And did he need much time to acclimatise? You, ma- you mentioned he arrived in December of, that would have been 1970.
2: No. I and mean, we ran him fairly quickly. He won his first race at Canton. 12 stone seven because he was unhandicapped. You know, you, you have national, uh, global ratings now, but in those days you didn't. He had to run three times to qualify for a handicap mark. But 12 stone seven set off, laughed at them, won without breaking sweat. Just an amazing debut.
1: Mm. And then it was a quick turnaround for the champion chase at Cheltenham, is that right?
2: Um, yes, and, and that's one of the sad things about uh, Jump Jockey's life. On the Saturday before the Cheltenham meeting, uh, mm. I rode a couple of winners and was going for my third one on a horse, funny enough, that had won championship at the Royal Dublin show for hunters, but he was thoroughbred. And, uh, I, I'm a pretty ugly rider. Uh, I'm, you know, not attractive at all and going to the last, I thought, well, I'll be in the front page of the sporting live tomorrow. I'd better get a good photograph. So having put him on a good stride, I'm winning, you know, I've ridden the race I'm winning, it's fine. Got him on a good stride. As I, I sort of got into position for a good photograph, he felt me relax. He relaxed. Put in an extra stride and skewed into the bottom of it and sent me out over his head. I landed in front of the horse on one leg and smashed my ankle. Needed seven silver screws put in it that night. It was just a mess. So I lay there with my leg up in a, in a sling in the hospital watching Paul Galloway steer him to. A very easy victory at Chopper. I actually had five odds on shots for the week, would you believe? And I'm lying there in the hospital. He was the only one who won of the five, but it's a, it's a hard blow to take for any jockey to watch other people. You think of Davey Russell at the moment in Ireland, you know, Robbie Powers moved, it's, uh, 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 and, and Barry Gadget is retired, and, and there's poor old Davey
1: with the world at his feet, and he's sidelined. But that's jumping yeah I mean like you say it was not just an easy victory he won by 25 lengths or something.
2: oh yeah amazing amazing well I did ride him in all his other races and we have still to this day we hold track records at Sandown and at Newbury and over two miles he beat the best there was Tingle Creek you know Tingle Creek was the big man but we we beat him easily on Crisp and also on Pendle at the same time you know we we had some tremendous horses that shows the the amount of speed he had to, to take, you know, to take the course records at two top tracks. And he was just an amazing horse.
1: Mm, absolutely. So you're laid up. He wins the champion chase, but the plan is made to go for next season's Gold Cup.
2: Yes. And he didn't. No, I wouldn't say he didn't stay. That's the wrong thing to say. We decided uh, Fred Window uh, and his jockeys would always talk races through at length and go through every scenario. And we thought, well, he's a two-mile chaser. He he, he likes to run. He sees a fence and he he wants to eat it, not jump it. He quickens going into every fence at his own volition. You didn't have to ask him. He he would quicken very low over his fences and galloping before he hit the ground. So that's. That was one of his huge strengths, and we thought to get the Gold Cup trip at three and a quarter, we'd hold him up. Well, he didn't like it. You know, I'm not saying he salted, but it wasn't for him. We finished fifth; we were bang there, going to the last, but he just, it, you know, it wasn't him. So, for a horse to win a two-mile Champion Chase by twenty odd lengths, uh, to not get the trip in the Gold
1: Cup, it was a bold move to head for the Grand National. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of people questioning that decision to to plan for next season's Grand National.
2: Yes, um, but even so, he went off as joint favourite with Red Rum, nine to one. That shows you how open the race was. And he carried uh, twelve stone, and Red Rum ten stone five. Um, so it was a bold move, and you know I get blamed for all sorts of reasons for getting beaten, but I'll only I'll only accept one of them. Most people thought I was brain dead by making the running going so far clear. Well, we had discussed the race in every way, and he was so quick going into his fences, and horses with 40 runners there, you don't see the fence early on, and a lot of them prop, you know, go, and shorten and, and, and slow up. Well, we would have jumped on something's back. So we decided we would make the running, and slow the race down from the front. Well, I went down the inner where all the brave men went. Fred Winter always, whoever I rode for, Fred said to me, go down the inner, and, and that's what we did. Uh, and Grace Sombrero was on the wide outside where the fences are smaller, the, the drops are smaller, not the fences, the drops, the turns are uh, not so sharp, etc. And I could see, uh, grey sombrero all the way going down there, and we were both lobbing along fine. Um, but I made a lot of ground going down on the inside around beaches, the Foyne, the canal turn, huge difference from inside to outside. And so then that's when it started to open up. But again, as I said to you, Mark, it wasn't, he was never running away with me. I was perfectly in charge. I knew what I was doing. I was happy and holding him and in, enjoying the ride. It was his quickness going into every fence. Now you imagine a chaser looking at a a, a Grand National fence and going, oh, 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 and just slowing it as opposed to my fella who was seeing it and thought, come on, bring it on. So as I was quickening and some of them were slowing, I was getting lengths and lengths at at each fence.
1: Mm, And so you're you're gaining lengths at every fence. You're, You're 20 lengths clear at the end of the First Circuit. And I've heard you mentioned absolute silence because you were so far clear of the field.
2: Yes, yes. The distance between me and the field uh, was exaggerated slightly because poor old old Grace Sombrero fell at the uh, the chair and that left me well clear of the rest of them. Uh, water jump, you jump it and you've got to do it all over again, which is great. You can start playing jockeys and thinking, what do I do now? Do I save a bit? Do I kick? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, on a non-stayer two-mile champion, you're not going to kick, you're going to save and save and save. And that was, Mark, quite eerie, because I'd ridden in a few, I'd been second in the National before on Steel Bridge, Irish horse, trained in England, and um, going out there, it was just odd. You know, it was nothing, no, no noise. I mean, you imagine galloping in the middle of 40 horses, the noise there is tremendous because of the galloping hooves, uh, horses exhaling when they hit fences, <laughs> uh, jockeys shouting. There was nothing. It was quite, quite eerie. And and you could see the carnage from the first circuit, you know, holes in bits of fences, uh, jockeys, some of them riding their horses back to from having fallen out in the for a second and one jockey just leaning over the rails holding a bridle no horse just a bridle and so it was eerie and when we got down to Beach's second time and Beach's first time he jumped it as if it was a hurdle because he was so full of going forward momentum and meeting it right he was never wrong at a fence he landed so far out over Beaches, he negated the drop so I didn't feel any of this great bump and nose hitting the ground. You know, mm. funny enough, I didn't—I'd forgotten, and it was only recently someone popped up a photograph on social media of him not stumbling, but, but legs under him and nose on the floor at the first fence. And I'd forgotten that, but he was a clever horse. But the first fence is so dangerous because you're going so fast and there are forty runners. You know, that's that's why. But. He he never made a semblance of mistake, but beaches both times, terrific. And the second time, I could quite clearly, and still in my head now, could hear hear Michael O'Hare, or Michal O'Hare, as you call him, a great commentator. He was doing the public address, and the speakers were all around, and I could hear him saying quite clearly, And Crispin Dick." Pickman at 25, lengths clear, and they're going strong. Red rum's coming out of the pack, and Fletcher's kicking him along. And I thought, that'll do me. If he's kicking and I'm sitting, that'll do. And Nicholson, David, who was fallen on the first circuit, was sitting on his horse on the inside. It was eating grass. He was sitting on it, and arms folded like one of those big Indian chiefs on top of the hill while the Indians are getting slaughtered below. And he said, "You're actually in a very posh voice. That's why we called him the Duke. You, you're actually thirty-three and a half lengths clear. Kick on, and you'll win." And I thought, "No, kicking on is the last thing I'm going to do because stamina is the big doubt." So, you know, Foinaven. The whole thing about Aintry is its a trap. You land with a bump on the on the drop at uh, beaches Foinaven. The smallest course cause a oh, sorry obstacle on the course. They're waiting for the drop. Of course, it isn't there. So the ground comes up to meet them at Foynayton. And then you've got the 90-degree angle of the of the canal turn. Well, Chris was brilliant. I was on my own. I could pull him out. I could aim across, go diagonally across the fence. It was as if there was no turn at all. He was brilliant. And I honestly believe the canal turn, if you can jump it right, could win you or lose you a national because you jump it twice. It could be two lengths or six lengths difference in your favor if you go right up that inner. So that's when you first see the grandstand is from straightening up to go to Valentine's. But it's a long way, Mark. It's, it's three-quarters of a mile, mm-hmm. you know. So the second time you jump, it, you're getting a bit excited, but you've got to keep telling yourself there's three-quarters of a mile to go on a stamina-doubtful horse, so I sat and held and he jumped brilliantly and he crossed the Anchor Bridge Road, you know, coming onto the racecourse proper and he's still tanking along and I couldn't hear another thing. And then after he jumped the second last, the petrol ran out. He, his legs, he was a good mover, strong, big, good moving horse. His legs started to go slightly sideways rather than forwards uh, and, and, his ears were floppy, you know, half ear, loppy ears, even they dro- started drooping. You know, he got to the bottom of his barrel. So the fact that he even lasted home was an amazing feat. Anyway, jumped the last. I could hear a horse coming, and it was firm ground. So you can imagine the drum, drum of the hooves. You, you can hear them quite clearly on firm ground mm. drum, 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 drum. Chris. Um, the, the pursuer, sorry, Red Run, was a high blower. That means when he exhales, his nostrils flap. Now, they don't all do that, but it's a good sign that apparently they never go in their breathing if they do that. So I could hear drum drum and <laughs> coming behind me. It was like when you're a kid and you have nightmares and you're running in treacle to get away from the bogeyman and you can't get away. It was horrible. But anyway, Chris, jumped the last right and I made the biggest error of my life which I've had to live with and will die with. I thought I'd give him a couple of cracks to wake him up and I pulled my stick through to my right hand and gave him a couple of whacks. Well I needed to go right handed to get around the elbow so the moment I let go of his head a bit to pick my stick up he, he died away under me because I wasn't holding him together anymore and he died away left-handed. I've had to sit down, put the stick down, pull him back on track. And I firmly believe that I lost probably two lengths there. Uh, and anyway, you get to the elbow and I pushed and scrubbed these knees out on his feet and 494 yards that running. And we got there and I could hear the high blowing <laughs> and the feet running closer. And Fletcher Brian Fletcher was very good because he challenged wide. He knew if he came to challenge Crisp up close, Crisp, even though he was dead on his feet, would find something. And even though he challenged wide, we could feel him and Crisp did just flinch to try and, but he was out on his feet. He couldn't go any faster. And it was only two strides from the line that, that I, I was caught. You know, it was one of those magical moments where you're going to win the national, two strides, you've lost it. Oh, it's an amazing thing.
1: I've heard you say you were obviously gutted in the immediacy after getting beat, but then you, quite soon after you felt quite elated at, at the spin you'd had.
2: Yeah. Mark, uh, I was elated before I got in. You see, I'm not a McCoy, a Dunwoody, a Scudam or a Frankham. I was a good loser. I just loved riding. I loved it. And I had had a ride but money could not buy. I earned that ride. He was my ride. You know, a rich man could not have got on him because it wouldn't happen. I, I had had the thrill of a lifetime jumping those fences. I, I jumped them on quite a few odd horses. <laughs> and to jump a horse like the black kangaroo around there was just amazing. So I went from, you can't change anything in life. you can't change something in life, don't worry about it. I, I got kicked in the face and lost an eye after i finished writing and i woke up blind and it, it didn't affect me i couldn't change it so except that you're in one eye the same thing with the national i'd been beaten they're not going to stop and run it again so i just absolutely enthralled with the the fantastic way that he went around there and his bravery and his the way he laughed at the fences so in fact it didn't take long i mean a minute of, of desolation and then it all exploded the, the absolutely thrill that I just had that I would never have again
1: mm. and I believe he didn't speak about the ride uh, with Fred Winter until a couple of weeks later
2: yeah, three weeks later Fred Winter was the best boss you could ever have because he was brilliant and I was not in his league and when he took me on as his jockey, I mean I went there as a kid hadn't been a winner, but when he took me on as his stable jockey Um, He said, look, Richard, you're you're not the best. You're probably only about the fifth best. But horses jump better for you than most people. And you're honest. And there are two things that I really hold on to. And as long as you've got those attributes, you're right. And we will lose some races that we should have won. But I'll accept that. Well, how prophetic! I got beaten just before Chris. I got beaten a short head in the Cheltenham Gold Cup on Benton. Then Crisp in the last two strides in the National. How prophetic were his words. But anyway, we didn't discuss it. I we travelled separately to the National. and uh, I rode dozens of horses in the next three weeks it was actually. and Driving him down to Plumpton, he'd been asleep in the front seat. And he, I suddenly was away. You know these times when you feel the hair in the back of your head standing up for some reason and, and it. I looked down and he'd got one eye open and he was looking at me from a sort of crouching, sleeping position. And he just said, you know where you lost that race? Well, we've been beaten in quite a few races since then. And I said, yes.
1: He said, well, there's no point in talking about it but You know, he was that sort of on there. <laughs> so I want to discuss um, his, the remainder of his career after that national. I mean, I think the following season he had a prep race over hurdles and then he beat the champion chaser Royal Relief in a two and a half miler at Newbury. But then he ends up in a match race with a 23-pound swing this time. They're off levels with a red rum. Yes. Yes.
2: Do you know, I can't remember that race beating Royal Relief. I can't remember that. Isn't that awful? (laughs) But I can remember the match race with red rum. It was at Doncaster. 12 stone each. And he won without ever coming off the bridle. Never had to ask him anything. And he won 10 lengths. But he got the suspicion of a flexor tendon injury. And Fred Winter was a great man. Horses came first. The only twice in all the, I wrote for him for eight years, I think it must have been. Maybe it was 11. And, yes, 11, I think. And, um, And he he hunted for eight seasons. Obviously, I'd love to have hunted him. I had Pendle as a hunter, but I I agreed that they did the right thing. But you know, wasn't it a shame that he could never go back to Aintree and prove it wasn't a fluke. He was a natural
1: jumper. He loved his racing, but that wasn't to be. Mm, I mean, particularly that day, Obviously Red Run went on to win two more, but in, back in third, that national was Les Cargo who came second the following year and then won it in 75, so the form yeah. was there anyway. Um, oh yeah, uh, it, quite incredible when you think about the Red Run Crisp
2: 73 national. Les Gargo was third beaten 25 lengths, you know, yeah. by us, and he's a dual gold cup winner. That was some race, wasn't it?
1: Incredible.
2: I did actually ride Red Rum. I've ridden a lot of Grand National horses, but not in the Grand National <laughs> Grand National winners, rather. I mean, I rode Foyneaven after he won. I rode Rack Trade. I rode, oh, several of them. Liverpool, there. Anyway, um, I rode Red Rum for the BBC. I used to do lots of stunts after I'd retired, and we did it for the cameras as a build-up. And we went round the flat track over two miles, and Ginger McCain legged me up on MC and he said, you know Ginger was like very bold as brass. He said, well, lad, he said, enjoy yourself. You've had one look at his ass in the Grand National, Now you can look through his ears. <laughs> <laughs> he
1: was just an amazing character. Brilliant. Um, you mentioned Crisp's owner, Sir Chester Manifold, was the chairman of Flemington. Flemington. Um, I believe you went there recently enough on a speaking tour. Well, it wasn't recently, but I went there and
2: I did uh, four different venues and it you know people were pretty oh you know raising people forgive you but they were made their thoughts known you know that their jockey's scottish guy who'd been in australia is years tommy McGinley, should have ridden a horse uh and not me and he would have won on him well i think most people would have won on him especially john franco i mean i made that boyish mistake of letting go of the reins to pick my stick up, you know. And after the last, it was a terrible mistake. I live with. I dream about it. Well, nightmare about it. Uh, but Tommy McGinley, um, I don't think, to be honest, he, he would have got round at entry because he rode with a very short hold of the horse's head. The fences were so much easier in Australia, and I think he'd have been pulled out over the, the horse's ears. I, I'm convinced of it now. The, the, the Australians, you know, were pretty acerbic that why didn't McGinley ride him, and
1: maybe Fred Winter thought that you know that the, the two different areas of the world required different skills. So Richard, just to to, to sum up, I suppose you've you've ridden some some great horses, uh, Pendle for two King Georges, Lanzarotti to win a champion hurdle. How how does Crisp uh, stack up or rank against those for you? Oh well. Pendle was beaten short end
2: in the Gold Cup and would have won the next one as well, but we were brought down two out by High Ken. Uh, Chris didn't win a Gold Cup and didn't get close, so Pendle on that merit is better. But you go back to the Tingle Creek thing, both Pendle and, and Chris beat Pen- uh, Tingle Creek in course-record time. So, you know, given his given his two-mile form, he was as good as any any horse I'd seen over two miles. He was a tremendous horse, but for a two-miler to nearly win the national with 12 stone, up in the, he, what he did is quite amazing. And penguin was, a, uh, calling him a ratty little horse is wrong, but he was a little, tiny, skinny little thing. Um, and he used to goose step, when we got him right, when he was ready to run, he would goose step like the German soldiers would. he put his head to the floor and his feet would come over his ears when he was coming back from the gallops and Fred Winter would say, I saw that, we're running. You know, he was, whereas Chris was always a big, strong, good worker. So two very, very different horses. Lanzarote, horse off the flats, won a champion hurdle, but you, you know, Comedy of Errors at that time was probably a better horse. Uh, but a horse from Ireland that, that, that we lost, the time of the National and the Gold Cup defeats only a week later, I think, after the National was Kilaini. And he'd won all sorts of good hurdle races and then chases. We won at the Cheltenham Festival without ever coming off the bridle. And I think he'd won nine in a row or something, you know, and he got killed at, at Ascot. And he had a breathing problem. Uh, he was squeaking away in his breathing and I, I kept telling Phil Winter this and he said, yes, uh, you know, we're aware of it. But we won't interfere with anything while he's winning like this but we were going to have a breathing operation done on him that summer and sadly he was killed at ascot he could have been he could have been the next article i I firmly believe we haven't seen another article i rode second to him twice and he just destroyed people you know he he was an amazing horse and what he did to give weight away to good horses, other good top horses to give stones away. You know, it Mm. was just amazing. And people don't do that anymore. So that's why I don't think there's been another Arkle. Captain Christie was a tremendous horse. Of course, we go to Desert and Quarter Star, and and lots of good horses. But I don't think we've seen another Arkle.
1: Richard, it's been a real, a real pleasure speaking to you. I'm, so, I'm sorry for putting you through the, the, the recounting the tale of that Grand National again. I'm sure you're sick of it at this stage.
2: No, I, I'm proud of it. Not proud of what I did, but proud of being part of that bit of history. Mm. I, I, I was a great friend of Ginger McCain's, and um, I used to go to party at his place the night before the National. You know, and it, it, it was. I was proud to know Ginger. He'd have a job to train today in this day and age because he was politically incorrect, you know. And the whole thing has changed. Ginger lived in the era that was made for him, and he wasn't just a one-horse trainer. You know, it was tremendous. And and how great for Donald to have picked up the baton and and gone on. Now we, I remember that race with fondness. Now. If it was Tony McCoy, Frank of the Woody, Scudamore, they'd be gnashing their teeth still. But I was a loser, and I was quite happy. I won, and I enjoyed winning, but I, you know, losing was part of the game.
1: Fantastic, Richard. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. It's a pleasure, Mark. Thanks so much, and uh, I'll talk to you again soon, I hope. I hope so. Well, there you have it. Richard Pittman, what a a gentleman, an incredible storyteller, and I can't thank him enough for giving me his time for that chat. I loved hearing him discuss that day getting beaten by Red Rum, how he's had to live with the mistake every day since, and also that bit about not being able to sedate the horse enough in the early days clip him was amazing. Okay, um, just a quick word of thanks uh, to those who did listen to the first couple of episodes and tweeted feedback, sent messages on Twitter, my DMs are open, um, and reviewed on Apple Podcasts. I'll be honest, I, I was pretty terrified that after months of work, uh, the podcast would just fall flat on its face and not get any listeners. So thank you to everyone who helped to prevent that. Really appreciate it. And I hope this episode is worthy of you doing the same again. Um, if you can share on social media, or tell a friend, write a review, any and all of those things go a long way and are hugely appreciated by me personally. Um, so, as you may know, I like to end the show with commentary being played over music. So you are about to hear the last part of the Aintree Grand National 1973, with poor old Crisp, looking around top weight, 23 pounds more than Red Rum. And this song is called I Am Brazil, by a really great Irish band called the Redneck Manifesto. And I've chosen this one because it goes along serenely for most of the way, much like Crisp in the race, before it all changes, as you'll hear in the closing stages. So I hope you enjoy it, and thank you for listening. And be sure to tune in to the next episode, which is about Champagne Fever, Um, with both Patrick Mullins and Ruby Walsh. Ever hear of those guys?
0: And crisp over that one, the one after Valentine's from Red Drum in second place. Spanish Steps is third, Hurricane Rock four, Rouge Autumn is five, Proud Top is six, Black Secret is seven, Great Noise is eight, Princess Camilla nine, then the Pooka and... Lescargo, who's still there, Endless Folly, Prophecy, and Pedruccio's son, who are clear as we rejoin John Hammer. Crisp's got three to jump. He's well clear of red rum. He's made a bit of ground. Spanish Steps is third. Hurricane Rock is fourth. Over the third from home, Crisp over safely. Red rum in second place. Then Spanish
2: Steps. Hurricane Rock just passing Spanish Steps. Th- then comes Rouge Autumn fifth, and they're a long way clear of Proud in Black Secret and Lescargo. As they go across the Milling Road with two
0: to jump, it's Crisp. With Red Rap in second place making ground, but a very long gap. After that, the Hurricane Rock Spanish Steps and Rouge George went back to Pedro Elizabeth. And he's conceding one stone nine to his pursuer, Crisp. It's Crisp in the lead from Red Rum, but Red Rum still making ground on him. Brown Fletcher on Red Rum, chasing Dick Pickman on Crisp. Crisp still well clear with two fences left to jump in the 1973 national. And this great Australian chaser, Crisp, with 12 stone on his back and 10 stone five on the back of Red Rum, who's chasing him. But they look to have it absolutely to themselves at the second last. And Crisp is over and clear of Red Rum, who's just jumping it. A long way back in third are Spanish Steps and and rock and Roll Jordan, and then the gaga coming to the final fence in the national now and it's Chris still going in great style with 12 stories back he jumps it well red rob is about 50 legs behind him as he jumps it and dick Pittman coming to the elbow now